Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. This Encore Gore Vidal podcast originally was posted on November 18th, 2015. When I was 15 years old, I read Gore Vidal's novel, Julian, and for many reasons, it changed my life. Later on, I became hooked on his novels, Burr and 1876, and more importantly, by his brilliant collection of essays, Matters of Fact and Fiction. By 1990, he was one of my heroes, and on the short list of people I wanted to meet and interview. On June 29, 1990, the Pacifica Foundation held a dinner honoring Gore Vidal. I sat to his right, and for most of the evening on my left was Barbara Ehrenreich, and across from us was Molly Ivins. It was a night to remember, though that's pretty much all I remember. The next morning, June 30th, I met up with Gore after he'd spent some time on KPFA's morning show with guest host Larry Bensky. The two of us went into the off-air studio for an interview, and for some reason we couldn't get the mics working. We retreated to my office, where I recorded this interview using my Sony TCD5 tape recorder. The interview was later transcribed as the lead article in the San Francisco Bay Guardian. It aired on KPFA during our fall fun drive that year, and then again a year or two later. It has not been heard since. Pay particular attention to the tail end of the interview when he talks about the drug wars, substitute war on terror, and he pretty much nails what happened after 9-11. I had three more chances to speak with Gore Vidal, and eventually these will find their way to the Radio Walensky podcast. All your fiction, whether it be satire, history, or science fiction, serves as a commentary on contemporary society. Do you see yourself primarily as a social critic, or as an entertainer, or as both? Or neither, as the case may be. I'm often not entertaining at all, and uh, social critic is um, sounds rather as though I had an agenda. Note I use the correct Latin there, not agenda, which is plural. I don't know that I could characterize what I do in a phrase. I suppose it is all the same thing. Any writer's work tends to be much the same, cut from, as it were, the same bolt cloth. But I don't think of myself when I meditate upon fourth century um, Christianity or the invention of Christianity in the fourth century in a book like Julian. I don't see any lesson for today past is interesting for itself because it's part of us and it is a pity that uh, our educational system has made has turned this great republic into the united states of amnesia where no one knows anything that happened much before yesterday and i suppose i'm drawn to write about history in order to pass on what i find out about our common past the British author Faye Weldon said that fiction is the only way we know how it is to be another person. Do you agree with that? That's a truism, and um, 
I think I would say some fiction, not all fiction, that is not necessarily the role of fiction, but that is a role, yes, of course, though I think you would argue, you would find that uh, Scorsese, the director, might tell you that uh, a movie could do that, I don't know. When you're working on your historical fiction, do you ever find yourself confronted with amazing parallels with um, contemporary uh, history now? Well, you know, we are bipeds. I mean, we've got two arms, two legs, two lobes of the brain. We're all the same, whether it's whether it's Julius Caesar or um, George Bush. It doesn't make much difference. Uh, human beings are pretty much the same, and that doesn't change. Now, I'd like to go back a little over your career. You were in the military service in World War II um, in the Navy, correct? No, I was in the Army boats. I started out in the infantry at 17 and transferred over to the transport command. And I became a first mate of an Army boat in the Aleutian Islands, where I stayed until I got out of the Army in the spring of 46, by which time I had written as I had a lot of time when I was on watch in port, my first novel, Willowa. How do you think your military experiences have affected your work? Well, I suppose they affect anybody. Um, if I had had a savage, uh, active war, I think it would have left a great mark on me, but uh, militarily my record was totally undistinguished except as the first mate of a boat where one was in danger of one's life from, from the Willowas, the great hurricanes. And I suppose it, um, I had gone from school, from Exeter, into uh, the life of a private in the Army. You learn a lot about other people, which you ordinarily would not learn, and I think that was quite useful. Had you always intended to be a writer? No, I wanted to be a politician, and uh, I've always been a politician. I would probably have, uh, I was born a writer, you can't do anything about that, and writers write. I read my first sort of adult book when I was about six or seven, and simultaneously I wrote my first book. It was as natural for me to write a book as it was for me to read one. Happily, I've read more than I've written, otherwise I'd be drowning in, the, in my own past. Early in your career, you did considerable work in the so-called literary genres, mystery and science fiction. Um, had you read much in the way of mysteries and science fiction, or have you? Well, I used to read a lot of science fiction when I was a kid, and um, some mysteries. No, I got into it after my third novel, I was The City and the Pillar, was on the one hand a great success, with the public, and on the other hand, it did me in with um, what you might call the book chat world, literary establishment, Time magazine. I mean, the New York Times said that they would never again review a book of mine, and the next five books they kept to their word. They didn't review them. So I had to go underground to survive, and under a pseudonym, I wrote uh, at the suggestion of a Victor Waybright, who was the head of Signet New American Library. And he said they were having great success with somebody called Mickey Spillane, and they said, we need somebody to balance him. Sort of elegant, witty, mystery story writer. 
and he knew that I desperately needed money, so in 1950-51, I wrote three Edgar Box mysteries in one year. And the New York Times, which would not review anything of mine, the Daily New York Times, Norwood Times, Norwood Newsweek, all loved the three Edgar Boxes. The New York Times, Anthony Boucher, the critic, thought death before bedtime, death likes it hot, death in fifth position were great mystery novels. In fact, it was Death in Fifth Position was picked by Dorothy B. Hughes as one of the ten great American mystery novels. Many years pass, and then I bring out the three Edgar boxes in a single volume. And on the cover, it's fairly clear that I am Edgar Box. New York Times reviews it and says what a terrible book it is, having praised all the contents before. So that, I believe, is a priori um, criticism. Have you read any mysteries at that particular time to uh, give yourself some background? No. I didn't bother so much with the mystery part. I had read a good bit of, a great deal of Agatha Christie, who in 1950 was the, the role, the Ur model for the mystery story. Detection, I suppose, is what it really is. But I didn't, I've never read anything, let's say, by Mickey Spillane, who was my counterbalance at uh, Signet Books, and I have, I've read practically none since. I worked out how you did the puzzle, and then these are largely tone of voice books. They're written in the first person, and it's really the tone of the narrator and the backgrounds that are interesting. And I find them, I read one not long ago, it's quite funny. Well, it was very useful to me as it taught me how to be a dramatist. That in a mystery story, particularly if you're in this sort of general line of Ms. Christie, you can't uh, have anything that doesn't, that's not going to be used. Everything is adding, is like making a mosaic. Everything must count, unlike the average novel, which is everything goes in and the author prays it makes sense. Drama is exactly like this. It's no accident that the most successful playwright in history was Agatha Christie. The Mousetrap has run longer than any play ever written by anybody, anywhere. And it's just nothing but one of her rather minor uh, mystery stories that she's uh, put on the stage with the greatest of ease. Still in the search of money because I was still being blacked out uh, as, as a novelist, which is my main trade, I then turned to television and uh, I think I watched one or two plays, live television, 1954. I watched one or two plays, and uh, I read two or three scripts. I wrote one, went on Studio One, and uh, I had the pleasure of being, uh, of taking over television for two or three years. Found it very easy, all due to my desperation to make a living, having learned how to be Edgar Box from there to Broadway and so on, it was very easy. Then I went back to the novel, and the poor New York Times has to review me. <laughs> uh, was the novel you went back to, was that Messiah, or was, or was that a little bit later? I quit the novel in 54. Messiah was the last of the seven books of my first cycle. And I spent from 54 to 64. I did plays on Broadway, I did movies at MGM, I did live television the three Edgar Box books, and then I came back in 64, having made enough money to keep me for the rest of my life, I came back in 64 with Julian, a novel about the fourth century emperor and the invention of Christianity, which took place during his uh, 
lifetime. What brought you to Julian? Uh, that th he was only emperor for three years, though uh, he attempted to turn back the clock, so to speak, on Christianity. Well, I've always thought that Christianity was the greatest disaster ever to befall the West. I am a true child of the Roman Empire and of the Greeks and of Catullus and of, uh, indeed of Plato, I suppose. But I am a classicist and uh, I know what the world was like before the Christian blight. Since I have a curious investigative nature and I also have a somewhat pedantic side to me, I like to teach. While I teach myself, I then write and I teach others. So I wanted to know how on earth this death cult ever took over the world. It's just, it's a religion made for slaves, and it's made for slaves to be kept in their place. The kingdom of this earth, it's not for you. You're having a bad time here, slave, but when you're dead, you're going to be better off than the emperor. Ha, ha, ha. Well, if I were running the Roman Empire, I'd promote that too. So ultimately, Constantine made that the state religion. And with it, we entered the Dark Ages for a long, long time until the Enlightenment of the 18th century, out of which came the United States in its best aspects. Its worst are associated with Christianity. So in the course of writing Julian, I, um, I was trying to find out wh what, why, where, when. And it's a good crash course. At the end of it, you see how Christianity was essentially an anthology of mystery cults and of a rather baleful to me, um, the prince of this world is not for me, that this earth is not worth bothering about. As James Watt, the famed Secretary of the Interior to Ronald Reagan said, why well, you know, we're only here. Who knows when the end of the world Armageddon is coming? Uh, we're just passing through. It's all going to end. So why plan? Why do you do anything? This attitude to me is not only disgusting, it's very dangerous. So I thought by revealing the origins of our sickness, I might lead us to health. The United States is one of the few countries that has a, uh, an evangelical history, I would guess, um, of the fundamentalist variety. Um, how do you see that affecting our future? Well, it, um, that is an element in all of Christianity, the evangelical. It's at its crudest in the United States. It was pretty much dying out until the invention of television suddenly gave these apes uh, a place to swing in the trees. And uh, from Jerry Falwell on, now they're slightly in decline because, because of their sexual inclinations, not to mention larceny. But um, it's always around. You try and get them on a good day. I've just come from Mississippi, which is the center of the Bible Belt, where my mother's family come from. And everybody's drenched in the blood of the lamb, but I think they can. you can talk some sense to them. hope so. We're talking with Gore Vidal. Washington, D.C. was the first of your historical series about America. Uh, at the time, did you have any intention of making it a series, or was that just a one-shot political novel? Well, I don't, wouldn't call it a political novel, but it's a novel uh, written in 1967, and it was the only time I have come anywhere near autobiography, as I was writing about a family not unlike my own, and a world not unlike my own. I was writing about Washington, D.C., aptly named. Then, after that, I ran for Congress, upstate New York, and uh, got interested in practical politics, got interested in the history of the country. So I decided I'd go back to the beginning, and I, then I wrote Burr, and suddenly I realized that through the eyes of one family, 
I could reconstruct the history of the Republic. So I picked a family, not unlike my own, but it's not a Romana clay at all. And from there, now we have Burr, 1876, Lincoln, 1876, Empire, Hollywood, which has just come out, that deals with the 20s, First World War, and Washington, D.C., so they're the six books from the Revolution up to Camelot. I may do a seventh looking back over the history of the Republic and my own history, and then again I may not. So in a sense, I have finished. Did I intend to do this when I wrote Washington, D.C.? No. Research, uh, what kind of research do you do? Do you have a research team working with you, or do you do it all on your own? I'm a writer, not a factory. I do everything myself. And I read slowly, so it means that uh, it takes me quite a while. It takes me, Lincoln was four or five years of reading. I do other things while I'm reading. No, I do it all myself, and then when I'm finished, um, Random House gets whoever is the expert in the field to vet the book, to make sure I've not made any great errors. In the case of Lincoln, say it was David Herbert Donald, the great authority on Lincoln, head of the history department at Harvard. Then I get a couple of researchers to go over the text and uh, just check everything from births to how tall people were and to make sure that I've got the details right. So the history in these books is quite, is accurate. They are novels, they are not historical novels, just because the phrase means something that is junk. They are novels that take place in history. So the history, I'm a historian, and in the midst of it I put fictional narrative, which then is counterpoint to the history, and I think it gives you a double view of how the past was, and it brings it to life. You also work in the realm of satire, particularly using science fiction as a mode for your satire. I'm thinking here of both Kalki and Duluth. Well, I don't, I don't quite know what science fiction is. There's no science in anything I write, or if there is, it's, it's completely wacky. I deal in imaginative fiction, and my instincts are satiric, and so I hope that a book like Duluth, which is I would think I'm not, I never grade anything or anyone, but it's my favorite of my inventions. It's a book uh, no one else has written, or I don't think probably could write, or, or would want to write. But it is a very funny parallel universe to the United States today, and my Duluth, which is located on the Gulf of Mexico, uh, is... Uh, well, it is far out, and wherever there is a wall, it is off it. Television plays a major role in Duluth, uh, as well as in uh, Myron. Television and people interact, in, I guess, in ways that they don't in this universe as we know it. What do you think about television today? Well, I've never watched television, so I mean, I have an impression of it. But I don't watch, so it doesn't, I'm not narcotized by it, which is the danger of watching it, that you just stare at it stupidly as you would at a fire, not absorbing very much. I think it's mostly junk, of course, but everybody says that. I have enjoyed working for television in my youth when I wrote for live television, but that, that was over by 1960. But out of that I did visit to a small planet and um, The Death of Billy the Kid, which became a terrible movie called The Left-Handed Gun with Paul Newman 
And I then took, it took me 30 years to do it properly, which I finally did for TNT, which I suppose is television, though it's really a movie. It's made, it's, it's made for the big screen, which came out last year on Mr. Ted Turner's network with Val Kilmer as Billy the Kid, with me as the minister in it. I specialize in funerals, which is a growth industry at that time in the New Mexico Territory. And I was well pleased that it was one of the few uh, works for, of, for the movies, really. Only that and The Best Man, the movie which I did at United Artists, could I say that, all right, what I've done, this is me. It's not that there isn't, I am the auteur, not the director. You've uh, also worked with directors, and uh, you've said that you find Martin Scorsese to be the brightest of them all that you've worked with. Yes, by far. Mind you, we're only beginning a project together. By the end of the project, his intelligence may seem to me to have plummeted extraordinarily. This sometimes happens in show business relationships. But thus far, he's very bright. I've known him for 10, 15 years, slightly. And uh, he has an interesting mind, which I have not encountered in any of the others of his generation. Some of the older directors were quite bright. What's the project? Well, it's his, it's his idea, not mine. Theodora and Justinian, the Byzantine emperor and empress. Again, Christianity. Marty got interested in it because of, uh, well, he's always been interested. He was, almost became a priest studied for it, and um, as you know, we did the movie about Jesus Christ, which caused great distress. And then he got interested in the Byzantine, which is the Eastern Church versus Western Church, and uh, he liked the look of the period, the mosaics. It's a marvelous story, this, the most famous couple, Theodora and Justinian, since Adam and Eve. She was a prostitute from the circus, and he was a a boy on the make, and they become the masters of the Roman Empire. It's a lovely story, and we know a lot. We know quite a lot about them. So Universal is uh, is doing it. We shall see. You've been on the edge of American politics for many years, and directly involved in running for Congress, and in third-party movements. Can you? summarize some of your feelings about having entered the political arena in that way as opposed to standing outside of it and writing about it? Well, I'm never outside it. Even when I write about it, that's not being outside. You must remember, if you want to be political, you must never run for office. And if you want to be effective, you must never hold office. That has been the simple lesson of the last 30 years. There's nobody in Congress or the White House for 30 years who's had the slightest interest in politics. They are paid for by the great corporations to represent their interests, hence the defense budget. Uh, if you're going to be in politics, if you're really interested in being useful politically in the United States, uh, you must never hold office. Uh, you can do it through writing, through appearing, through television, through just meeting people. Because the price of holding office is from that moment on, you must never have a political opinion of any kind. The only subject of any importance politically in the United States for 30 years has been the budget and peace, war and peace. None of this can be discussed openly to the people by the politicians, nor have they any intention of doing it, because the politicians have been chosen by the corporations. 
uh, to represent their interests in Congress and in White House. For instance, practically the entire California delegation to Congress represented for many years the defense industries. They were paid for by Lockheed, Northrop, and so on, and uh, they gave good value for the money that was given to them to run for office. So, proof of all this, look at George Bush. He's going to be the environment president, he's going to be the education president. Actually, he's been actively against the two, but he was greatly interested in cutting the capital gains tax, to which he has brought great skill and passion. It's the only thing he's accomplished, aside from invading the evil empire of Panama. So that gives the game away. Now my role has been to speak out on these issues and try to clarify them, pass on what I know about the country, which I think is there are those who know far more than I do, but mo most of them have been bought by the corporations. You see, they also own the universities, they own the media, they own the Congress, so there's no point. The people at large are never represented, and the people at large are never informed. And there's no way of getting to them except when a maverick like myself, I come from the ruling class of the country, and we're not even, we've been told there are no classes, which is the joke of the world, and people have swallowed that. Uh, I do my best there. Now, I've run for office twice. But I gave up any hope of a serious political career in 1948 when it was arranged for me by the powers that be in the United States that I move to New Mexico and uh, become the senator in something like would have taken about 20 years. Certainly would have been in Congress in about 10 years. I was then 21, 22. My grandfather, who was the boss of Oklahoma, Senator Thomas Gore, made an arrangement with Governor Jack Dempsey, not the fighter, but the governor, who was an Oklahoman, governor of New Mexico. And I would be put on the ballot first as a presidential elector in the election of 1948. I would settle in Santa Fe and I would in due course become an establishment politician. Meanwhile I had written The City and the Pillar and that was a book that was not going to do me any good. So I made a choice that I would not have a mainline political career. My exact contemporary, George Bush, when I was at Exeter, he was at Andover, we were about the same age went in the Army, I went in the Army, he went in the Navy at the same time. He's exact, it was very interesting, we were parallel lives. He played it safe, he wanted to be president, his father was a senator, my grandfather was a senator, came from the same sort of family, same sort of ambition. He played it absolutely safe, has done nothing at all for anything or for anyone except to promote his career and the corporations decided that between Dukakis and an old-school, upper-class gentleman, they would take Mr. Bush. So I look at Bush and I see, well, that's what I did not do. And I didn't do it because I was very ambitious, and he isn't, to be President of the United States in its decline. is nothing I would want on my resume. And at the end, uh, he isn't very interesting, nor is has he perhaps as much influence as not I, but those of us who express uh, opinions and don't give up. I leave out entirely whether the artist is better than the politician. I see no difference between the two in which I reflect uh, Pericles in a famous passage when someone comes to Pericles as reported in Plato, 
comes to him and says, uh, I'm not interested in politics, strategos, which was Pericles' title. Pericles said the man who does not think his politics is his business has no business. Well, what's left for the United States then? If, if there is no democracy and if the president has become just a, a minor pawn and I guess, you know, Ronald Reagan may even be less than Bush, what's the future of the United States? Um, will it just plod along? Well, we've, we're, we're rapidly going into a second world status. Our debts are Argentine, and our politics will probably eventually be Argentine. Uh, I'm an optimist, otherwise I wouldn't bother to speak uh, on the radio or go on television or publish a book. I think that it can be undone, but it's not going to be very easy. We will get rid of the empire because we can't afford it. We'll spend money repairing the plant, as they say, of the United States, educating the people. And perhaps we might, with some effort, and over the next century, if the human race survives overpopulation and pollution, we might achieve a civilization, something we have not so far. How do you see the, uh, the so-called end of the Cold War, and do you think that the ruling powers, uh, this ruling class, is upset about it, or are they just looking at new profits? Well, they'll always be in business. My little cousin Albert Gore, I notice, uh, recently came out for using the fast defense budget, not for cutting it, heaven forbid, but to use it to help the environment. Apparently, there's nothing better than poison gas, you know, to clean up the air, some notion like that. And, of course, the war against drugs is now the official enemy and has taken the place of communism. Uh, but it's not going to be very money-intensive, but it will give the government what it most wants, which is total control of the people of the country. It gives the police vast powers, as all prohibitions, particularly stupid ones, do. So I see us moving toward a police state, and that is the thing that most immediately alarms me, that people just allowing, allowing it to happen. Mandatory blood tests, urine tests, lie detector tests. This is not my country. I don't like anything about this. You live in Italy part of the time now. Do you see that becoming freer than here now? No, Italy is much freer and a far richer country. Per capita income, I don't know, is probably, in, in terms of quality of life, is much higher. The United States ranks number 19 in quality of life, and Italy is in the first five. No, Italy is a real country. People... Uh, care about their culture, they have a culture. There's not a taxi driver in Italy who doesn't know Dante. Uh, I don't find much of that here, let us say. You know, they have an educational system, they have a sense of identity. However, that comes from something else. They're more homogenous than we are, although they are broken up into sections, and the sections don't much like each other, but it is a homogenous culture. Our policy was to take in everybody, and, uh, which I think is a good thing. It's, I like pluralism. I like uh, South Koreans and uh, Afghans or whatever. I just found a restaurant, the Kabul, an Afghan restaurant. Happy to have it here, just as long as I don't have to eat in it. It's awful food. But um, we take in everybody. That's good. But every time you take them in, your civilization gets a, gets a setback. You, gotta, you have to absorb them. 
And now, with the new do-it-yourself, the new centrifugal movement in the world, moving away from the center, uh, the Spanish don't want to learn English, which is fine by me. But then what do you do? Answer, you have a cantonal situation where there'll be Spanish-speaking cantons on the southern rim of the country and English elsewhere. I don't think a great civilization is going to come out of such diversity, but uh, it's good to have all those people around. But it seems that that's also what's going on. Uh, that breakup of sorts is what's going on in the Soviet Union now as well. It's not well, just here. It's all over the world. Everybody is sick. Canada, Quebec is trying to get out. Scotland would like to break off from England. The Basques from the Spanish, the Soviet Union, when Russia wants to secede from the USSR, that's a real first no, I think this in, people hate the nation-state is what they're trying to say. Leave us alone. Don't bother us. Let each tribe, each ethnic group, each religious group, however they want to they want to individualize themselves, do its thing. This is a step backward to, um, to pre-Roman times then, uh, as if coming full circle. No, the Roman Empire was, was based upon, why it lasted so long, was the recognition that each of its... Um, client states would continue to be itself and do its own thing. Rome only represented uh, consolidation, the sense of roads and of currency and maybe foreign policy, but it was not onerous, at least not until the end when the taxes got too high. I think that has been pretty much the pattern for world empires, even for the early British Empire. The big change came with Lincoln, who smashed the old American Republic and replaced it with a highly centralized state of blood and iron and simultaneously Bismarck was doing exactly the same thing with the German states bringing them together into a single entity which everybody hated and now the Germans as they reunite show signs of also splitting off into cantons which I like. The rise and fall of the American Empire then pretty much began with um, Lincoln and ended with the end of World War II? No, I think the American Empire really had five years of, of total hegemony, which was 1945 to 1950. Then came the Korean War, which we lost, and McCarthyism, which poisoned our public life, and it's been complete, um, it's been a, a descent ever since 1950. But that is not abnormal, and the empire was pretentious and mindless. It's good we got out of it without being destroyed. We could have been very easily blown up by somebody. Gore Vidal, uh, if you look over your career to date, what gives you the greatest satisfaction and pride? What gives you the greatest disappointment and regret and perhaps also the greatest outrage? I don't look back. Uh, Walter Clemens, the critic at Newsweek, has been working for four years on my biography. And there are four or five other biographers out there grinding away, but I don't have anything to do with them, though I do with Clemens. I am not given to thinking about the past, my own pasts, nor to memory lane. I am very active in the present. Future is an abstraction, but I'm more oriented toward that abstraction than toward the illusion or delusion which is the past. There are no bests, there are no worsts. I don't know that I would have done much of anything differently. I chose to be outside, and uh, the great attempts were made to eliminate me. 
quite successfully in many ways. I've been totally demonized or trivialized by the press. In 40 years, there has never been a profile or a study of me that did not have one malicious intent, which is to discredit everything that I had to say about the rulers of the United States who own the media that is interviewing me. So I have quite a good reputation, let us say, in Europe or the Soviet Union, and quite a bad one here as a very evil, vicious, venomous, terrible person. And they make up stories that I'm supposed to have said. None of it's true. They can't bear what I say about how they, and by they I mean corporate America, has pretty much destroyed the old republic. But I still am in the business of restoration or maintenance or what have you, and uh, I survived. That was Gore Vidal on the morning of June 30th, 1990. There are three more Gore Vidal interviews coming on this podcast. Two of them have not been heard since their original air dates. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 